Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you from Rhode Island. Thank you very much for uh, asking the Lord to remind me what real winter weather looks like. <laughs> Unmoderated by the warm Atlantic Ocean. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. We're going to be looking at a very well-known passage of Scripture, uh, one that Christians have always understood, and this has deep roots in the interpretation we find in the New Testament, uh, to be speaking of Jesus Christ. Um, But I also think that there's much that we need to see, and sometimes we don't see, about Isaiah's message to us as we seek to serve the Lord. So we're going to start reading at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and read through the end of chapter 53. Hear God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human assemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring." He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Before I unpack a little bit of what I was beginning to say about what this has to do with us, I want to summarize some of what we just read. And so first, I want to look at the ways in which the servant, whoever this is, who's depicted here in Isaiah 52 and 53, the ways in which the servant suffers. And the first thing that we see, it's not very easy to take, is that the servant is offensive to look at. It's not very nice to look at. He's off-putting. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was marred beyond human, human semblance, his form beyond that of mankind. The second thing we see about this humble and suffering servant is that he's humble in origin, and he's not royal or noble in his appearance. He grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Chapter 53, verse 2. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him. There's nothing royal in his appearance to draw us his way and make us think of him as a king. He has no beauty that we should desire him. It's almost the opposite of what Haggai says in Haggai chapter 2 when he says that the desire of all nations will come to the temple. He's describing the coming of Christ. And yet when Isaiah speaks of him, he speaks of him as having no beauty that we should desire him. He's outcast of men, and it looks like, at least, he's outcast of God. He's despised and rejected by men, verse 3, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we, we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's not just that he's unpopular with men. He's in such rough shape that everybody looks at him and says, God must not like this guy. He's a man of emotional misery, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Speaks of the anguish of his soul in chapter 53, verse 11. When he is attacked, he is silent, not objecting or arguing back against those who go after him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Ultimately, he's unjustly injured and killed. We read of him as oppressed in verse 7. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away or cut off, as it says in the Greek version, chapter 53, verse 8. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, and yet violence was done to him. His family line is cut short. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? He's treated like a wrongdoer even when he's dead. They made him a grave with the wicked. Most traditional cultures have burial places for suicides and outcasts and notorious men, and he's buried with them. And he's with a rich man in his death. Now we can definitely, and we should read this as a prophecy of Jesus being buried in the tomb of a rich man, but it's also a little bit of a puzzle because rich men aren't automatically bad guys in the Bible. But he was numbered, we read, with the transgressors. And all of this, we read very clearly, was the doing of God. Chapter 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
But the second thing I think we need to see here that's really important about this servant is that the servant suffers for the sake of others, not because of any wrongdoing on his own. We read that he endures the sorrow of others. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's physically punished for sin in the place of other people. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's punished in order to bring healing to other people. Punishment can bring healing to someone if it's what they deserve. But this one was punished in order to bring healing to others. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And ultimately he is killed for the sins of others. Stricken for the transgression of my people. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. Now I want to come back to this question of how should we read How should we apply this passage? Who is this for? What is this about? And again, this is classically understood as a portrait, a very direct portrait of Jesus. This came up in conversation um, yesterday with with the Foltzes, that this is often a a, a passage that people will use in evangelizing Jewish people. And And I have a story about that to share. A few of you may know Rich Gantz, who is a retired pastor from Ottawa, Canada. Uh, He was the Reformed Presbyterian pastor there for many years. He founded that church. He grew up as a Jew in the Bronx, and he grew up as an Orthodox Jew and ultimately became an atheist before, through a series of circumstances and events that he always described as miraculous, he wound up in the Netherlands at a study center called Labrie. And while he was at Labrie, an angry, atheistic Jew staying at a Christian study center, someone read to him from Isaiah 53. And he was furious. And he responded, how dare you read to me, a Jew, your New Testament? At which the man came over, placed the Bible in front of him, and pointed to the Isaiah at the top of the chapter. And this was the beginning of the end of Rich's unbelief. And he came to faith in a peach orchard at Labrie that year. It is right for us to understand this and to see this as a portrait of Jesus. But first, and in order to understand the riches of it, we actually have to read it in its Old Testament context as a portrait of Israel. But even before that, we need to read it as almost a self-portrait of the prophet as a leader in Israel whom no one wants to listen to. And we are called, I think, to read it in Christ as a pattern for our own lives and ministry. Usually we read me when we should read Jesus in the Bible. This is a perpetual thing, right? I often tell people in my church there's basically two ways that you can read the Bible. Either it's about you or it's about the Lord. And hint, it's about the Lord. But secondarily, it's about you because it's about the Lord. Usually we make the mistake of reading me when we should read Jesus. Here's a case where maybe we rush to read Jesus, but should also see a picture of ourselves and the kind of life and service that God is calling us to. With all of its pain but also all of its promise. And specifically what I want us to see 
is that if you set out to serve the Lord and other people in any kind of leadership, authority, or care, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. If you want to do anything that is beautiful and fine in the eyes of God, if you want to do something that is lasting and good with your life, if you want to uh, do something that makes an impact for generations and even for eternity, you will have to suffer. If you want to be a great business person, or coach, or teacher, or mother, or father, or husband, or wife, or group leader, or supervisor, or director, or president, or dean, or doctor, or head of school, or senator, or chief scientist, or mentor, or captain, or board member, or mayor, or lieutenant, or master sergeant, or professor, or secretary general, or pastor, or deacon, or elder, or anything, you will have to suffer. This is the path that the Lord has set before us. This is what he means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Well, how? We'll look back at the servant. First of all, you will have to go it alone at times. People that you loved and poured yourself into will leave. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not for good reasons. People will not understand the decisions that you're making and they'll criticize you for it. Those you once thought of as peers will quit, will burn out, will even become your enemies. And sharing your mind and your heart with other people will be a constant struggle. Second, you will not be one of the cool kids. First of all, you may find yourself too old to be a kid at all. And second, you will never fit comfortably with the trends that you see unfolding around you. Third, some people will see the way that things are hard for you, and they will think that God is angry with you. Because some of the things that you suffer, God does bring on people that he is angry with. And fourthly, you'll be accused of wrongdoing unjustly at times, so much so that self-examination will be a constant task for you. Other people will think you're doing wrong, and you will need to have the humility to look at yourself and ask, am I on the right track? Fifthly, you will be stopped from defending yourself when you're wrongly accused. You'll have to hold your tongue instead of letting your critics have it when you want to. There's an old saying about how to write an email when you're angry. First, carefully draft your email, then delete it. You'll have to hold your tongue instead of telling them exactly what you think. You will have to suffer physically on some level. Nothing will kill you like stress, either directly or indirectly, and you may find that you're not one of the beautiful people that you always hope to be. You may have to give up your family. It may be that you'll never marry, or you'll never have children. It may be that your parents or your spouse or your children or others betray you or don't understand you. You will almost certainly struggle with what some people call work-life balance, and you will not be able to give your family all the things that you otherwise could. And finally, you may lose your very life if you seek to do something good or beautiful in the eyes of God. And I think sometimes that the Lord basically gives Christians one of two choices. Either the swift sacrifice of a violent or a tragic death, or the slow sacrifice of what Paul calls spending and being spent. 
But this suffering is not pointless. Because as we saw in this passage, the sufferings, this, uh, the, the servant's suffering, I'm going to get those, my S's mixed up a lot, I think. The servant's suffering helps and saves other people. Well, let me ask you a question. Does it sound like it's too much to say that our ministry with the blessing of God can save other people? Can we save people? Well, actually, the New Testament says we can under Christ. We can't atone for other people's sins, of course. But Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is under Christ. This is participation in the salvation of Christ. But there is something that we can do to intervene for the salvation of others. This human servant cleanses others from sin, not by atoning for their sins like Jesus does on the cross, but through prayer and patient discipleship. Think about that when we read, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This is an action of priestly cleansing. The priests of the Old Testament sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the people. They sprinkled water of cleansing on people. We fulfill that same role when we lift other people up before the throne of God and when we seek to disciple them. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Ultimately, no human being except Jesus himself can make an offering for another person's guilt. But as we come before the Lord, as we labor for other people, as we struggle for them in prayer, but also figure out scheme with others at times, how to sanctify them, how to bring them closer to God. That is what we're doing. Our soul is making an offering for guilt. We're burning time and energy and, and uh, gray hairs at times, or any hairs whatsoever, depending on your genes, in order to seek the salvation and the good of others. We read that the servant helps and saves many. He will sprinkle nations. Kings shall shut their mouths. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant has an ongoing ministry of prayer for those he or she loves and seeks to lead. He makes intercession for the transgressors. The servant's righteousness and knowledge will save many. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This is justification language. This is people being brought to faith in Jesus Christ. He will successfully teach ignorant people the way of Christ and the word of the Lord. And parents and teachers, that includes ignorant little people who need to be taught. And though no one believes watching that this can happen, God does a great work through his service. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? People will look, and they will say, I did not think that would work. So in summary, the suffering will not be for nothing. The labor will not be in vain. If you pour yourself out for the good of others, the Lord will use it for good. Mostly, by the way, in ways that you cannot see. 
at least in this life. Some may be converted. Your prayers for some will be answered. Their sins will be forgiven and their hearts will be changed. Many will be guided into a life of more goodness and righteousness, more holiness than they would have lived without you working for them and praying for them and talking to them. Strayed sheep can return. And not just those you're in contact with. The effects of your leadership, your discipling, your prayers, your teaching, your patience will multiply through those whom you have served to others in turn. So ask yourself, who did Isaiah reach? Well, in his own lifetime, from everything we can tell, not very many people. Toward the end of the book, I think it's in chapter 66, we read about just a, it seems like a tiny minority of ancient Israel who even gave him a hearing. And later on, we we read about Jeremiah in another uh, generation, the same kind of thing, this weeping prophet who seems to waste his life, burn out the lining of his stomach, talking to people who don't want to hear it. But it's not just those that hear us directly. It's not just those that we pray for and know ourselves that are affected by our ministry. Isaiah reached you and me. Jeremiah reached you and me. Jesus reached you and me. The apostles reached you and me not just a few in their own generation. And so the work that God does through us as we suffer in his service lasts almost certainly for generations to come. One of the things that I think is is easy to miss, especially in a a politically charged time, in a time when a lot of people want to fix the problems of the world around us through political means, is that we are playing a long game as Christians. In fact, we're playing the longest possible game, a game that outlasts our lives and continues into eternity. In time, you will silence your enemies. You will silence the enemies of God. In time, your seemingly strange priorities will be vindicated before the world. Why did you stay in your marriage when it was so rough? Why did you give away so much of your money? Why did you have your kids so young? Why did you stay in that contract instead of breaking it? Why did you put your life on the line for your subordinates? Why did you not retaliate when that person did that thing to you? Why did you not just quit? Even the great will shut their mouths before what God has done through your work. The effects of an obedient life, a life of sacrifice for what is right, can almost never be seen right away. And if you think about it, where's the glory in only working for things that you can see right away? It takes decades, if you're a parent, to begin to see how your kids are turning out. You don't know that when they're three, right? You get compliments. I don't know if you've had this experience, but you get compliments in a store on how well-behaved your kids are, and they always kind of bounce off me. Well, I mean, he's three, or she's 10. We'll see when they're 40. Sometimes we, I don't actually say that, by the way. That's very rude. Sometimes we grow up only to see our parents make big mistakes in middle age or make big turnarounds in their lives. 
The compound interest of a righteous life pays off in decades and centuries and millennia. And it pays off in churches and in nations and in societies as well as in families. And this is true, by the way, even of people who after they die are dishonored. Our society owes a lot to people whose monuments they now tear down. But much more to people we have never heard of and never will. So my question, if you're in the thick of something hard and wondering if you can stick it out, is this. What do you want more? To feel appreciated or to change the world? So what about the servant himself? Doesn't he die in this picture? How does this do him any good? What's the result for someone who, is, who gladly spends and is spent for the sake of others in obedience to God? Is the message of the Bible, do the right thing, even if it's going to destroy you? Well, in the justice and the grace of God, no. That's not the whole picture. It's not just do the right thing, even if it kills you, even if it does you no good. The servant who suffers is also satisfied when he looks back on everything that's happened. We read in verse 10 that the one who gives up a family for the sake of the kingdom of God shall see his offspring. That's an incredible promise. We read in verse 12 that the one who gives up wealth for the sake of the kingdom shall divide the spoil with the strong. We read in verse 10 also that the one who gives up a long life for the sake of the kingdom shall prolong his days. The one who does what is right even in the darkness of uncertainty will see that it was worth it. In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He looks back on everything he's gone through and everything he's had to do. And even if nobody else sees it at the moment, he knows that it was worthwhile. Now, we may be asking, how, how am I going to do this? Right? Where will I get the strength to serve in the way that God is calling me to? Maybe we may be are asking right now, especially you younger folks or you folks who are at a turning point in your lives, how is God calling me to serve? And I'm going to give you zero help with that this morning. Although maybe tonight, a little bit. We need to be asking a more fundamental question, which is why? Why would it work like this? Why would it work like this, so that if we pour ourselves out, that our service and sacrifice will lead to salvation for others and satisfaction for ourselves. Because there's no fundamental reason why God owes us that. None of us can stand before the Lord and say, I did X, Y, and Z, so you owe me A, B, and C. We can sweat, and we can work, and we can bleed, and we can weep. First of all, we can do all of those things for bad things, for bad reasons, or even for good reasons, but we still don't put God in our debt. As Jesus said to his disciples, does a master thank his servant because he did what he commanded him? When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, or actually, I like the King James word for this, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty. And none of us has cause to complain before the Lord. Well, the reason is this. 
In a few months, many churches will be celebrating Easter, known outside of the English-speaking world by a better and more accurate name, which is Passover. And every week we remember the resurrection, but it's helpful sometimes to remember especially that connection between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Passover. Because the day of Jesus' resurrection was built on top of that ancient celebration of escape from Egypt. When the people of Israel were told by God to prepare for the end of slavery and the beginning of freedom, and the only way that their redemption could happen, the only way that they could go from slavery to freedom, was for God to bring death on their enemies, death for all the firstborn sons of Egypt. But the question then was, how would it be, how could it be that the angel of death would sweep over all the land of Egypt and not also bring death to the children of Israel? Well, I think most of you know the story. They had to be marked and covered with the blood of another, with the blood of the lamb. And when you get into the details, this should make us all feel a little bit uncomfortable. Every family was to take a lamb from their flock, an unblemished lamb, just the best, finest, cutest, most beautiful lamb they could get their hands on. And then the lamb was to live with them in their house for four days. You've heard people call their pets their fur babies. I'm not a big fan of that. Partly because I don't think technically dogs have fur. But that's an aside. The lamb becomes their wool baby. The lamb becomes part of the family. And finally, on the 14th day of the month, they were to slaughter it. Can you imagine that? And the blood must be painted on the doorposts of the house. And the flesh, every bit of it, must be roasted and eaten by people who had loved and cuddled it. The message of Passover was clear. Life does not come through death just because, because it's spring or whatever. Life comes through death. Salvation comes to dying people through another, through the death of the innocent other. And when Jesus came... What did John the Baptist cry out? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the true servant of whom we are all disciples and imitators on our best days. This is the one whose life was cut off from the earth. This is the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, silent before those who condemned him, who put himself in the hands of the just God crying out, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the one who takes away the sins of the world. The Ethiopian court official's question after reading Isaiah 52, 53 is so perfect because especially, and I won't get into details, but especially reading it in Greek, which he was back in Acts chapter 8, it spoke of Jesus, but it also spoke of his own life, somebody who by oppression had been cut off. And what he asks Philip when Philip runs up alongside his chariot, hearing him reading out loud from the scroll of Isaiah is, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And the answer is yes, about himself and about you and me as we serve, but only because it is about another and we read, Jesus, we read Philip's, the, uh, Philip's reaction to this 
which is he doesn't pause for a second, but beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The message of the resurrection is manifold. I will name just three things. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us that salvation is not within us. Salvation is not within us. It must come from the Lamb sent by God. The good news that the servant's suffering is not in vain is only true because it was first true of the Lamb of God. Every hope for something good coming out of our lives is wrapped up in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what obedience to God looks like. It doesn't look like conquest and triumph and winning after winning. It looks like dying and watching God take what died and raise it up. Second, God has given his son and servant, Jesus Christ, glory, kingdom, power, and satisfaction. He looks at the anguish of his soul and is satisfied. All that he went through was worth it to him, not just worth it for us. I mean, we're glad Jesus died and rose. But what Isaiah teaches us here, and what the New Testament confirms, is that Jesus, on the other side of his death and resurrection, looks back and says, that was good for me. All that he went through was worth it, for through it, he won dominion and power and a bride. And that is you and I, the church, the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And third, because the risen Jesus is in you and you are in him, your service and sacrifice are not in vain. God will use them for the good of others, soon or not soon. God will bring such joy and fulfillment to you that you will look back and say, it was all, all of it was worthwhile. We work and love and worship and rest in that knowledge. Now I want to close with just two, two verses from Scripture. One is also from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 4, and this is Isaiah reflecting on his own ministry. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And the last one I want to read, I just remembered just before the service began. This is a verse that has meant a lot to me. I'm sure I'd read it many times. But some years ago, as a fairly young pastor, I was at the funeral of an old and wonderful pastor a number of years ago. And he had written the script for his own funeral before he died. And at the end of, uh, at the, end of the service almost, he made sure that I, 1 Corinthians 15 was read out loud. And 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, if you don't know, the hope of the resurrection. And it ends, verse 58, with this imperative. This is, the, this is the apostle turning away from reflecting on the hope of the resurrection and the defeat of death at the very end and turning to those he's been writing to and speaking directly to them. Therefore, my beloved brothers... 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we all find ourselves in the middle of the tasks that you are calling us to. Or a few of us, Lord, are maybe at the very beginning of some great new endeavor. Maybe we're starting a new job or we're at the beginning of our educations. Or we've just gotten married or we've just had kids for the first time or we're doing something else or we've just begun church office. Whatever it is, Lord, we look ahead with great hope but also with trepidation or we look back and we look at our lives and we say, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. Lord, you speak to us through your word and you give us this comfort and this hope. And so we praise your name and we pray that we would keep it before ourselves always because if we don't, we're not going to get much further. Lord, we pray that you would give us always a vision of the cross and of the risen Christ, that he looks on the anguish of his soul and is satisfied, that he looks at everything that he has done and he says it was worth it. And I pray, Lord, that with this vision in front of us firmly, repeatedly, week after week and day after day, that we would put one foot in front of the other and you would, we would do the hard things that you have called us to do. Hear us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.